it's that time of the year again. Parliament, political economy and Pesa. I mean, the centre's Hisab Kitab, a.k.a. Union Budget of India. Honourable Speaker, sir, I present the budget for the year 2022-23. But a lot has changed in the year gone by. Covid receded, but wars escalated. Rates zoomed, but tech valuations crashed. And many got washed out in global layoffs. Google's parent company, Alphabet, announcing today it will cut 12,000 positions. That is 6% of its workforce. Amazon has announced worldwide job cuts. It's been a rough start to the year for Silicon Valley. Microsoft announced it would lay off 10,000 employees, or about 5% of its workforce. Meta announced that it's cutting more than 11,000 jobs, about 13% of total staff. Netflix has made big cuts. So has Shopify, Snap, Twitter. But India is singing a different tune. It's holding out new opportunities based on technological advancements in telecom connectivity, in combating climate change. But at the same time, we have to gear up for elevated interest rates in the developing economies and its after effects around the world. As the Modi government gears up to present the last budget before general elections in 2024, Will the government's balance sheet allow for the much-anticipated populist push? It's Tuesday, 31st of January. The countdown for budget has begun. From the Economic Times, I'm your host, Arijit Barman. And in today's special edition of The Morning Brief, we bring you excerpts of a conversation I had with a star-studded jury panel of the Economic Times Awards. which includes India's Sherpa to G20, Mr. Amitav Khan, India's Executive Director at the IMF, K. Subramanian, former SEBI Chief, Mr. M. Damodaran, and a widespread representation of India Inc., right from Harsh Mariwala, Sanjeev Bikchindani, Hargreev Khaitan, Preetha Reddy, Adar Punawala, Sanjeev Mehta, Arundhuti Bhattacharya, and Deloitte's Chief, N. Venkatram. We debated on India's decade, can the country deliver on its promise? With a fiscal deficit about 6% and an ambition to grow the share of manufacturing in Asia's third largest economy, the finance minister faces a tightrope balance, which is also a tongue twister. Will the fiscal focus on finances put the finance minister in a fix? A question I pose to Amitav Khan and former Chief Economic Advisor K.V. Subramanian. Should India therefore be leveraging low growth would also lead to low commodity prices and isn't this the time to break away from the shackles of fiscal deficit targets and use domestic barrels to invest in physical and social infrastructure to spur domestic consumption and growth? Absolutely. You know, rather than going by norms that actually have no grounds in economics, things like the Maastricht Treaty, which said that, you know, 3% fiscal deficit and 66% debt to GDP 
By the way, I must mention to the viewers that the master strategy sheet is not an economic document. It is a political document to bring the year together. So rather than go by that, I think we have to think for ourselves. And clearly, I completely agree. But it should not be for revenue expenditure. It should be for capital expenditure, as has been done in the last, you know, three, four years. Because capital expenditure essentially creates assets. And when you have assets in the economy, supply increases. That also means that you don't have as much inflation. I would expand that to also go into health and education. That's a target that we should be doing. And, you know, utilizing this uh, should be definitely a priority. Look, I do have questions on that. But Mr. Kant, uh, are we too obsessed about rating agencies? And that's why we get trapped into this fiscal deficit debate. First, let me put this right. You know, India as a country needs to be fiscally responsible. You know, there are 75 countries in the world which are facing a global debt crisis. Uh, all around you in South Asia and Southeast Asia, you're facing a major challenge of being fiscally responsible. The government's debt to GDP ratio is high in India, but the private debt to GDP ratio is extremely low in India. And therefore, if you compare India's private debt, Debt to GDP ratio is in the 56 or 57. In America, it's 256. China is 226. So, what we need to do is to get the animal spirits of the private sector back to drive India's growth. Yeah. And this would require a huge technological leapfrogging. It would require them to get into completely new sunrise areas of growth. And this would really require a huge new areas of, you know, which are going to drive India's growth story. Electric mobility, battery storage, green hydrogen, mobile manufacturing. These are the areas which are going to give you 10x more growth than the normal areas of manufacturing. And that's why the sunrise areas of growth are very, very critical for India from viewpoint of growth and job creation. Correct. Mr. Venkatraman, what's holding India in back then? I mean, this animal spirit that Sakal is talking about, that, you know, private debt should go up. CapEx, there should be much more CapEx outlays. This still, it's improved, but still... You, you know, first, I think uh, you're talking about CapEx. Mm. Yeah. Is CapEx depends on a few things. One is, of course, the capacity utilization. And there was a period when the capacity utilization was below 70%. And now it's inching up beyond 70%. The second important thing we often forget there were a lot of dormant assets which were locked in NCLT. Mm. They, are, they are really something like eight and a half lakh crore of capex equivalent. Capacity has now been released. So you need to add that before you come to a conclusion that private capex is not happening. I don't think the animal spirits in private sector has gone down. I don't think the risk-taking ability of Indian entrepreneurs is low. So I think this is an issue which we make a lot about, but there's not much really meat in it. I would tend to agree because, in fact, I was going to bring out the point of, even if you look at, say, the bankruptcy courts and the number of brownfield assets which have been purchased, it's a pretty staggering amount. But today, I think the inflection point is how do we bring more investment in? Hmm. And from a company perspective, from what we see, I think everybody has their investment plans in place. I agree completely with Mr. Khan that we should look at the new sunrise areas. But then again, you want to look at gestation period. I mean, in addition to what he said, we can also add uh, space in terms of what is happening, you know, whether it's on the space, drone, satellite, all those areas as well. We have to look at the potential of 5G and the tremendous potential you have in terms of the 
again, 5G and technology and what it will do. Look at financial inclusion. Uh, look at the fact that it is not very far away that India will manufacture $100 phones. In fact, I think our own research says that we can come up with a $99 smartphone. These are all things that we talk a lot about, but somebody's got to put their hand up and say, I want to make the investment. Mm. Mm. So I certainly think the conversation now is to move more into how do we get more money in for business? And maybe Mrs. Bhattacharya could give us the answers on that one. Uh, certainly the banks have loosened on credit. If I look at all the new developments, whether it's OCN and the like, they will help them MSME businesses. There's a lot happening. The question is, how do we stitch it all together? True. Ms. I wanted to ask you, the balance sheets of Indwell have improved a lot, no doubt. There's been, you know, it's been cathartic. But on the other side, first IBC, the world assets are growing, and I'll ask Argiv's opinion also on this. Some might say it's also leading to concentration of powers within just a few business groups. It's not spreading. Is that part of capitalism? Or there's something more deeper uh, here? The fact of the matter is that at certain times, there may be concentration in certain areas, but you will see competition come up. If you see the number of startups that are coming up every day, if you look at the kind of solutions that are disintermediating the legacy industries, if you look at all of that, I don't think concentration in any industry is going to last long in any hands. Because better solutions will come up. And therefore, I don't think we need to worry too much about the things getting concentrated in a few hands. Mm -hmm. uh, because there is sufficient amount of entrepreneurship in the country, which again gives me a lot of hope. Believe me, India will be the talent basket of the world. There is no two ways about it. In the next decade, 25% of the skills required globally will come from India. That's the way it is just about out of sheer demographics because the world is growing younger, whereas, you know, we ourselves are still, we have 67% of our population in the working space. I'm very optimistic about this, actually. I see it across the world. So we are, we are getting younger, certainly. We are also consuming more. And that's where both Malco and HUL sit right at the heart of the consumption story. Mr. Medved, after your December numbers, I was seeing one of your interviews and you said, Rural markets have shown some signs of improvement on easing inflation. And robust sowing of winter crops and increase in farm incomes. If there is real income growth happening in rural India, what should we do to sustain this? You know, first, I think the important bit is that it is not that the headline growth is not happening in rural. It is there. Okay. Albeit at a much lower level than what we would all like it to be. The second is the inflation in commodities has been unprecedented. When in a business like ours, you have a net material inflation of over 20%. This is not something I've seen in my 30-year career with Unilever. So this is unprecedented. And despite this increase, yeah, is the industry has taken a price increase of about 12%. The consumers in rural are still spending more. Understandably, they've cut back on volumes to manage their wallets, which is again very intuitive. I believe that once the commodity prices start tapering, the volumes will also come back. Mm. And the rural per capita consumption is one third of that of urban area. 
So if you look at the trend, rural consumption should be growing faster than urban for years to come. It's at a very low pace today. And India's per capita of FMCG is about $45, which when you compare, forget with developed countries, developing countries is, uh, say, Indonesia is 2x, Philippines is 4x. So just look at the runway to grow. What India needs is inclusive growth, more money in the hands of more people. And the consumption story of India will be the consumption story of the world, not just for the decade, for decade and beyond. Mr. Mayor, but intuitively people would argue that you need to move to cities, urban centers for real income to see a rise in your personal real income. That needs rapid urbanization. Our cities are choking. We both come from a city where 60% of the urban poor live in slums. Uh, how can we deal with this of actually creating more sustainable energy-efficient urban centers. I'm not an expert on this, but let me just say that when urbanization happens, consumption levels go up here. There is a conversion from unbranded to branded and going up the value chain. So clearly, urbanization is adding to purchasing power. That's for sure. It's adding to wealth. Then I think many towns are emerging also, but they have to emerge in the right way in terms of environment, in terms of urban planning. So we have some way to go, but I think we are seeing emergence of smaller towns, which is a good sign. The economy's greatest strength and one that is mostly under-delivered is a population which continues to expand but add to the liability. As the jobs jolt hit the global economy, the big question remains. Is India translating its demographic dividend or will it forever be a distant dream and just boardroom chatter. Mr. Kanta, India's median age is 28. It's 38 for China. So technically half the country that is close to 70 crore are eligible young people. They need to subsist, survive and do better. Now, the survival instincts alone will create enough momentum for the GDP to grow. But is it anywhere close to whatever is the true potential? You know, the best route for this benefit from the demographic dividend is to grow at high rates. We're growing at about 7%, which is the fastest amongst large countries of the world. But we need to be even more ambitious. India needs to grow at about 9 to 10% per annum year after year for three decades or more. Many countries of the world have done this in the past. And this can only happen on the back of two, three things. First is, like we've demonstrated, the huge digital transformation that India has done. We do 11x more payment than what US and Europe do together. We do 3.5x more than what China does. We need to do the same thing for going green because going green is going to attract value. It's going to attract capital. And India is climatically blessed. That's important. And the other thing is to really drive CapEx expenditure. This is really going to be the key. The higher the growth, the greater your per capita income. Important thing is that you may be $3 trillion, you may be the fastest growing large economy, but your per capita incomes are still just $2,100. We need to take that to $15,000 for every single Indian individual. That's when the real prosperity for the demographic dividend will take place. Well, Vedashaya, it's tough to put you in a bracket. You've been a banker, now leading our 
cloud-based software company. We're on the board, several companies, including Reliance. The demographic dividend, the young and the restless that we keep talking about, how can technologies, how can artificial intelligence tackle or help harness this restless energy? Let me tell you that we really call this India's decade. That's the term NASCOM uses and even the government is using that. Because it is actually technology that's going to help us solve this enormous problem, which cannot be solved in any other way. Mm-hmm. Not only that, the fact of the matter is, if you're looking at technology skills across the world, in a survey done by our own company, that Salesforce, it shows that we have the most digitally aware population of any country. And the strange part is that we are number one country of people above 80 who are enabling themselves digitally, above 80, mind you. So, you know, it's quite strange to see the way India has evolved as a digitally aware country. Having said that, I don't think industry is up to speed. The only thing I think that, you know, we can really deliver over here and really unleash the power of demography, as you're calling it, is by ensuring the right kind of skilling. I True. think there is a gap there, True. and that's where we really need to work. Mr. Subramanian, you've been inside the government and now at IMF. I want to ask you this, that we're talking at one end of subsidizing semiconductors, when, as per our own education ministry's assessment, dropout rates at the primary level have doubled. Are we somewhat missing the wood for the trees? The way I would frame your question is about, you know, on the one hand, manufacturing, which is basically PLI is an enabler on that manufacturing sector growth versus human capital. I think both are extremely important. Human capital for the service sector. Manufacturing, you talked about the, you know, the demographic dividend. And I think if we really need to be providing jobs for all the youth that we have, we do need manufacturing sector. For instance, many of us maybe live in gated communities. The people who do who come and do housekeeping, these folks could actually be going and working in a factory nearby, have a permanent job, and therefore earn very well, and you know not suffer volatility of income. And as Milton Friedman said, the permanent income hypothesis yeah. that really builds up consumption. And you know, boon boon se sagar bharta hai. So you know, it will actually be important for macro as well creating jobs and therefore I think we have to certainly enable manufacturing sector growth. We need to focus there on removing all the, you know, the five elements, each of which actually add to costs, which is capital, labor, logistics, power, sure. and the economies of scale and, and really make it competitive for our firms. And at the same time on the human capital, I think education and healthcare, the digitization that is happening, I think will really enable that. That is what will, you know, enable a lot of service sector growth because when manufacturing grows, services will also follow. And so I wouldn't hope frame this as an either or or, it is an and. Right. Mr. Dhanagaran, would I be wrong to say that the two fundamental ingredients for economic development, and we can go back to 300 years, that no country has actually grown without education and secondly, increased participation of women in the workforce. There's absolutely no doubt that you need increased participation of women in the workforce. I think we haven't done enough. Education is important. Healthcare is important. What is most important is what we have neglected for a very long time, which is skill development. 
you use the expression demographic dividend. It will be a dividend only if you can skill that part of the population. Otherwise, it will be a liability. Mm. So skilling ought to be given very high priority. If that doesn't happen, nothing else. One last thing we need to do, we need to make our legal systems far, far simpler than they are at this point of time. Now, we are all trapped in the process. We will never get to see justice at the end of it Correct. unless we discard these outdated processes. Now, we have two very prominent women professionals on the panel, and I have to ask them, Ms. Bhattacharya, once again, to you, while diversity seems to be a broad agenda, but it seems that the Indian birds themselves do not have enough women board members. You know, is it bad, difficult to get tough women leaders to populate our birds? Privately, seniors would say, Prakara, we don't have enough. Is that a fact? It is absolutely not a fact. And in fact, I have recommended various very capable ladies to boards. And very often, the leaders of the boards, the chairman of the boards have come back and told me that these are not C-suite people. They may be just below the C-suite. And all the rest of my board members are C-suite people. And therefore, you know, either the women may feel out of place or the other board members may not be accepting of it. Hmm. Now, the fact of the matter remains that, you know, it is the truth that there are not that many women in the C-suites. Does that mean that till they get to the C-suites, they don't get a seat on the board? I have met, for instance, one other one lady of similar sort. And I somehow or the other managed to convince this conglomerate to put her on one of the boards. Today, I know that she's on three of those boards of their companies. Because when I asked them, how come this happened when you were so resistant about her coming on one board? He said that, you know, she's the best prepared and brings the best inputs into the board because of which now we have put her in three boards. Mm. Now, the fact of the matter is we have to get past this mentality. But board members need to have that openness to be able to accept non-C-suite, ex-C-suite people into their boards in order to improve that uh, number. It is not difficult to come by extremely competent women for boards. Correct. You know, it's not just the board or the C-suites. The participation of women in the red force in India is very low. It's gone down post-pandemic even more. So how do we get them back to the offices? Getting women back to the workplace has been a challenge because I think women have also understood that they can, you know, really work from home mm. and, and do very well and be productive. So one, I think, policy from a company is that if you physically don't need them there, we might have to rethink ourselves. We might have to reinvent and say that maybe work from home or, you know, work uh, different hours. So we have to be flexible and a bit forward thinking in that space. When you talk in terms of the number of women on boards, mm. the real problem is no one is looking hard enough. The universe on which they focus is existing women directors. Mm. Outside that number of existing women directors, there are a whole lot of other people who are fit. But right. if you don't look in that direction, you'll never find them. Right. Before you move away from women, I thought I would probably make a point that and I'm always nervous talking statistics in front of Mr. Khan. So he'll forgive me if I say there are 400 million women who are below the age of 30, 50% women. Even if you say you get 100 million women in the workforce, we've done our jobs. Yeah. And you're talking at a period of growth for the economy. In a period of growth, 
you will have a lot more employment and each one of us as organizations has to make sure that you at least take 50% into the workforce. And again, if you look at skilling, look again in terms of the intersection with technology, I think we are the cusp where we as India can set the path for the rest of the world. I know Mr. Kant, you're doing it in the B20 as well in terms of how we bring the diversity on the agenda there. And I'm very, very confident that we should look at this positively. And as regards the boards, with all due respect, as a working man of so many years, I can say this, that boards are more for governance. I don't think we should say that the highlight of one's career is only being on a board. There are many other positions of leadership that one can enjoy in organizations. And many organizations do give women those positions in leadership. So let's not benchmark success with only being on a board. There are many, many other ways in which one can be successful. Sure, sure. Arjit, if I can step in yeah. on the board issue, it's, it's not the, really the women issue, it's the board issue. The quality of boards in India is not good at all. The board is a source of competitive advantage and unless managements improve the quality of board, the board, the way board functioning, it will have a huge impact. The boards have to play a very, very important role, not only in ESG part, but the strategy part, the culture part, the purpose of the organization. And I think that's where we need to improve substantially. What's the strategy in seven? Um, certain sectors are very suited, of course, for women, um, including their interest in joining that sector. Now, take, for example, manufacturing, working eight, 10 hours in a grueling condition in the heat without breaks. You know, some women choose, you know, a, a more creative role or want to work in marketing or design. Sure. For a manufacturing sector, particularly where you've got to, you know, do packaging or stand on an assembly line, it's particularly difficult to encourage and get women to be in that place. But we actually made a lot of strides to bring women in um, and stop this working from home. And I know there's a lot of diverse views on it. I hope a lot of my competitors encourage working from home because then uh, I'll become a monopoly because, you know, uh, this notion of working from home, yes, during COVID was fine. In certain areas, it's okay. But I mean, how can you really work from home? Your children ain't come running through the door on a Zoom call and interact or something screaming. Looks very unprofessional. And, you know, you want to be able to be creative. You want to be able to interact with your colleagues at work. Now, how can you do that from home? That took away, this was a very important part. A lot of ideas, creativity, personal interrelations between executives, employees, mid-level, that happens in the workplace. At the canteen, lunch break, even just when you've got some idle time. Can't do that sitting at home. So I think that's very important that, you know, you work from home when you have to. But we have a very different culture of coming to work and, um, you know, building on creativity and, and relationships and the culture of a company is very important. You can't do that online. You can't do it from home. Even as India continues to outperform, the foreign investor and MNC sentiment towards the country has been rather weak. Foreign institutional investors or FII's pulled out over $16 billion in 2022, turning net sellers for the first time in four years. And we also have a great migration from MNCs out of the country. I began by asking Hargreev Khaitan, who heads the law firm Khaitan & Co's corporate M&A and private equity practice, is this a worrying trend or just a passing phase? 
And when it was we were here and asked, have you you've been sitting here patiently? Uh, and one other aspect that I want to discuss or talk about is the fact that, you know, the Indian story is great, but at the same time, several MNCs are actually exiting India. We saw Holsel, one of the largest cement or building materials company exit, a German retainer exited. As for some data, about 2,800 MNCs were exited since 2012. Um, is that a wearing trend or this is fair for the course? You have to really go behind and see why they are exiting. And uh, to my knowledge, I think they're not exiting for India reasons. And they're exiting for global reasons, global strategy. And a lot of them which are exiting are really coming back in a different way. So, for example, you know, if uh, you mentioned some names, you'd already see them back in, in some other capacity. They might be also exiting because they're exiting a certain type of business, polluting business, for example. So I don't think it's an India, you know, a reflection on India. I think it's the reverse where I see far many more investors looking back at India. And I don't think this should be really the yardstick to see that MNCs are running away from it. One aspect that keeps recurring right when we talk to MNC CEOs is the fact that they confirm that the most pedigreed Indian corporate, even if they have an arbitration prayers and dispute settlement, if they lose, they will say that this arbitration order is not recognized in India. Again, it gets into Tariq, Vitari, one court, NCLT, then Supreme Court. It just drags on. And we've seen this far too many times. Uh, well, this is uh, truly unfortunate. And in spite of, uh, you know, several amendments at several occasions having been made to our law, giving finality to arbitration awards and recognizing international award, awards as being final and binding, uh, I think that uh, there's been some sort of interpretational loophole by which awards have been challenged. Mm -hmm. But I think the government is very cognizant of this. And uh, the good part is that every time a loophole like this is identified, there is an amendment which proposed to fix it. I think the law commission is already aware, is looking at it to see how the judicial process can be made more efficient. Mr. Danadan, I wanted to ask you about minority investors. But before I do that, I wanted to ask Mr. Mbata a question. The companies are globalizing and probably that's why there's a lot of change in strategies that are happening. And global companies are shifting their R&D bases, many of them, to India. Therefore, do you think royalties are or will be needed to justify going ahead? You know, you have to understand the business model. Now, there are some business models where you set up an R&D center like we have, where we have 700 scientists, 200 PhDs, yeah, working on cutting-edge research, where we do not absorb the cost. The cost is absorbed by the center. Yeah, so it comes back to us as technology fees. There's nothing wrong in it. So we have to, before we come and jump to a conclusion that royalty is good or bad or not in the interest, I think we should understand what the details of the transaction is rather than coming to a conclusion mm. based on just hearsay. But from a minority shareholder point of view, Mr. Damodar, companies are increasingly becoming more 
homegrown. They're buying brands, they're, they're localizing. So the dependent and the parent MNCs is reducing to various degrees. So many would argue that royalties are not justified because it is anti-minority shareholders. No, I think uh, Sanjeev explained why they exist. Because when you do business, you need to protect the interests of all your stakeholders. If you focus exclusively on minority shareholders and ignore the interests of the others, clearly you don't get the game going. Hmm. You've got to balance this. What is needed for minority shareholders is more investor education so that they make informed investment decisions. If they're uncomfortable in a company, they should vote with their feet or make enough noise in AGMs to see that they are heard above the din of the management. Hmm. If they don't do that, just sit back and hope that everything will work out. No, you've got to fight your own cause. Mr. Richard, then one sector that should have gained with China cracking down on their tech companies are our consumer internet companies. Uh, but clearly our unicorn seems to also have broken horns. If you look at the last one and a half years. But it's not natural that because China's cracked down on tech industry. No, that is the, the name many would frame to England and then the VC space if, if, if China is no longer a safe place to invest. So that has happened to some extent. Right. Okay. Having said that, look, entrepreneurship is Darwinian. Startups are Darwinian. Many will fail, some will succeed. And we're seeing that play out now as the tech market, tech valuations, public, public market is corrected in the US and now in India. So I think the startups of today, some of them will be giant companies of tomorrow. And therefore, some will fail, some will die. But those that succeed will make it big. And I think one of the best things this government has done is Startup India. Uh, and that will pay off well over the next 20, 30, 40 years. But do you feel that nobody is really talking about building institutions? Everybody is talking, more focusing to be on passing the beta and to the next investor who's suffering from a bigger firm. When, when there's abundant capital, that's the nature of markets. But the ones that will succeed and thrive will not be following that model. They'll be building real value, getting customers, getting revenue, making profit, and making things happen. Mr. Venkatran, the last word, the soft power of India. You said R, 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 three words in Davos. That's the biggest export story for this way around. Yes, in fact, I'm wearing a tie which says the elephant can dance. <laughs> so I, I certainly do believe that the pandemic gave us a lot of resilience. A lot of the other topics that we talked about, you know, I can even go on to other alphabets like the T's, whether it's talent, technology. But the one which I would close with, and I really highlighted the most important and critical for us today, is trust. As a nation, we've built a lot of trust. As businesses, we've built a lot of trust. And as I said, a lot of investment is required for our future growth. And to get the capital in, I think the area we need to continually work on is the India brand and trust. This is the part where I usually give my take on the issue at hand. But today... I pass the baton to none other than Swaminathan Ankleshwarayar on his take for the upcoming budget. The world is going to go through a major recession in 2023. This has to be a battle which is being fought on the global plane. This is not just an internal thing. So it is not can Nirmala Sitaraman send India through the roof. The question will be can you prevent India from shrinking downwards? Because the whole world will be pushing us down. 
So, you know, uh, this year they're talking about 6.8% growth maybe in GDP. Next year, if you achieve 5.4%, as RBI says, you'll be lucky. Raghuram Rajan says may only be five. We cannot say because things are not under our control. So we have to be nimble, flexible and reactive to what happens in the rest of the world. We do not know how high interest rates are going to go. We do not know how the deep recession is going to We do not know how deep the recession is going to be. We do not know what is going to happen to the Ukraine war. There are so many unknowns. So this has to be a budget where we say, I am prepared for all kinds of contingencies rather than say I have a single-minded target and I can go for it. I have to on the other hand be prepared for contingencies. So it's a battle of saying that this has to be prepared for disasters. We have to be prepared for all kinds of things that go wrong. Don't be too optimistic. Don't be too uh, aggressive. One thing is clear though, I expect intention on the lines of Sabka Saath, Sabka Vikas. This is your host, Arijit Barman, and you have been listening to The Morning Brief. Sound editor for this episode was Indranil Bhattacharya, producer Sumit Pandey. Executive producers Anupriya Bahadur, Anirban Chaudhary and yours truly. We hoped you liked this episode do share on your social media networks. The Morning Brief drops every Tuesdays, Thursdays and Friday and is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Google Podcasts as well as GeoSavan. Do tune in to ET Play, our latest platform for all audio content including The Morning Brief. All clips used in this episode belong to their respective owners. Credits mentioned in the description. Goodbye and good luck.